Hello and a very warm welcome from my side. Uh, my name is Guntram Wolf and I am absolutely delighted uh, to host today this event on artificial intelligence featuring uh, Sundar Pichai, the CEO of Alphabet and Google. I think uh, Mr. Pichai needs no introduction. Um, uh, we will, the plan of today really is to first listen to your speech um, and then um, after your speech, we will have time to sit down and um, discuss um, a, a few points around AI. Um, and uh, of course, if you would like to ask a question, um, you see we are many in this room. It's very difficult to actually ask, uh, ask someone to speak in the room. But what you can do is you can actually go on sly.do, so slido, um, and type in the code AI20. AI20, um, and um, the ones that are most selected and most voted for move up in the, in the ranking, and I can try to at least ask one or two questions from, from the audience. Um, thank you again, Mr. Pichai, for uh, joining us today. We very much look forward to your speech. Um, please, the floor is yours. Thank you. for your kind introduction and for your invitation to address this esteemed group. We are grateful for the work you do here in Brussels to support good fact-based debate on a wide range of important topics. We particularly appreciate your support for the transatlantic relationship between Europe and the United States, which we believe is critically important. There are so many areas where we can work together based on our shared values. We are already partnering with European institutions in several areas, from helping businesses and people succeed in the digital age to building a more sustainable Europe. Today, I want to focus on one area in particular, how industry and government can work together to leverage technology to help improve people's lives. I know that, that this is something that's on top of mind for all of you, and so it is for Google. I've always been a technology optimist, not only because I believe in technology, but, I, but because of what I believe people will do with technology. This morning, I met some inspiring entrepreneurs who reminded me why this is so important. I visited Molengeek, a community open workspace and business incubator in Molenbeek. We have supported the organization with grants from our philanthropic arm, Google.org. There I met one of the founders, Ibrahim, who dropped out of high school at a young age. He taught himself web design and started four of his own companies. His mission for Molengeek is to make sure technology and entrepreneurship are accessible to everyone, regardless of their academic, cultural, or religious background. This mission is deeply personal to me. Growing up in India, I was fascinated by technology. We had to wait for every new invention to reach us, from the refrigerator to telephone to the television, and it changed my family's life in meaningful ways. It's what inspired me to pursue a career in technology. Now as CEO of Google and Alphabet, it's my privilege to try to help shape the development of new technologies we hope will be life-changing for people everywhere. As we work to build a more helpful Google for everyone, 
we strive to provide people the tools to increase their knowledge, success, health, and happiness. And one of the most exciting technologies we think will make a difference and we are working on is artificial intelligence or AI. Just this month alone, there's been several concrete examples of how Alphabet and Google are tapping into AI's potential. This month, Nature published a research showing how an AI model can help doctors spot breast cancer in mammograms with greater accuracy. We are using AI to make immediate hyperlocal forecasts of rainfall more accurately than existing models, part of a broader set of tools we are working on to fight climate change. And Baymo, another Alphabet company, announced that its self-driving vehicles have traveled more than 20 million passenger miles in real-world conditions. With over a million deaths caused by car, car crashes every year, we are hopeful this application of AI will help make the world's roads much safer. We are also seeing AI begin to drive economic opportunity right here in Europe. With the help of Google's AI technology, Siemens was able to revolutionize its manufacturing with automated visual inspections helping them concentrate on customer value. Earlier today, Lufthansa announced that it's working with Google Cloud to help streamline its operations and reduce flight delays. For those who fly often, you can imagine how helpful this could be. To help European businesses do even more with AI, we introduced our AI for Business checkup tool in Italy last year. It's a free online tool that helps companies to evaluate their readiness for AI and understand how to make the most of this new technology. Today, I'm proud to say we'll soon be rolling out this tool to 11 more European countries. For those of us who have been working on AI for many years, it's easy to get caught up in these exciting signs of progress. <clears throat> Yet history is full of examples of how technology's virtues aren't guaranteed. The invention of the internal combustion engine made it possible for people to travel beyond their own neighborhoods with ease. But it also increased the number of deadly accidents, something that Waymo is now working to solve. The internet made it possible to connect with anyone and get information from anywhere, while also making it easier for misinformation to spread, another challenge we are working hard to tackle. These lessons teach us the importance of being clear-eyed about what can go wrong. So while AI promises enormous benefits for Europe and the world, there are real concerns about the potential negative consequences for AI. <coughs> One area of concern is so-called deep fakes, which are video and audio clips that have been manipulated using deep generative AI models. Google has released open data sets to help the research community build better tools for deepfake detection, and we are working on those as well. There are also valid concerns about facial recognition technology. This, te this technology can be used in new assistive technologies and tools to help find missing persons, as an example. But it can be used for far more nefarious reasons. That's why Google Cloud has chosen not to offer general purpose facial recognition APIs while we work through important policy and technical safeguards. These are just two examples. There'll inevitably be more challenges ahead, ones that no single company or industry can solve alone. 
Of course, companies have a responsibility to get it right. Companies like ours just can't build a promising new piece of technology without also taking responsibility for how it's used. It's equally incumbent on us to make sure that the power of technology is harnessed for good and available and accessible for everyone. That's why last year we published our own AI principles to help guide ethical development and use of technology in our research and products. These AI guidelines help us avoid bias, test rigorously for safety, design with privacy on top of mind, and make the technology accessible to users and developers. They also specify areas where we will not design or deploy AI. For example, in support of mass, mass surveillance or in violation of human rights. But principles on paper are meaningless unless we put them into practice. That's why we've also developed tools and processes such as testing for fairness and conducting independent human rights assessments of certain products. We've gone even further by making these tools and related open source code widely available, empowering people across society to use AI for good. We believe that any company developing new AI tools should also adopt its own guiding principles and rigorous review processes. But beyond individual company efforts, there is an important role for governments to play. There is no question in my mind that artificial intelligence needs to be regulated. The question is how best to approach this. The EU and US are already starting to develop regulatory approaches. As governments pursue this path, international alignment will be critical. To get there, we need agreement on core values. That's where institutions like yours can be helpful. We don't have to start from scratch. Existing rules, like Europe's GDPR, for example, can serve as a strong foundation. Good regulatory frameworks will consider safety, explainability, fairness, and accountability, making sure we develop the right tools in the right ways. Sensible regulation must also take a proportionate approach, balancing potential harms with social opportunities. This is especially true in areas that are high risk and high value. Regulation can also provide broad guidance while allowing for tailored implementation in different sectors. For some uses of AI, such as regulated medical devices like AI-assisted heart monitors, existing regulatory frameworks will serve as good starting points. For newer areas, such as self-driving vehicles, governments will need to establish regulations that take into account all the relevant costs and benefits. It's not enough, of course, to recognize the need for corporate principles and government action. Being a responsible company also means being a helpful and engaged partner as we navigate these issues together. We want to offer our experience, expertise, and tools as we grapple with the inevitable tensions and trade-offs. We have an enormous opportunity ahead of us. AI holds the potential not only to address enduring challenges like disease, inequality, and traffic safety, it also gives us new tools to solve immediate threats like climate change. Google and others in the tech sec sector have already made great strides in operating our company sustainably. One of the ways we do this is by being the world's largest corporate purchaser of renewable energy. 
Last September, we made the biggest corporate purchase of renewable energy in history. Nearly half of the megawatts that we will purchase will be produced right here in Europe through the launch of 10 new renewable energy projects. These agreements will spur the construction of more than 1 billion euros in new energy infrastructure in the EU, ranging from a new offshore wind project right here in Belgium to five solar energy projects in Denmark and two wind energy projects in Sweden. A second way we do this is by increasing the energy efficiency of our data centers. On average, our data centers are twice as energy efficient as a typical enterprise data center. Compared with five years ago, we, we now deliver around seven times as much computing power with the same amount of electrical power. In fact, businesses that switch to cloud-based products like G Suite have reported reductions in IT energy use and carbon emissions of up to 87%. And AI is at the heart of these exciting new developments. In recent years, AI from Alphabet's DeepMind has played a hugely important role. By applying DeepMind's machine learning to our own Google data centers, we have seen a reduction of up to 30% in the amount of energy we use for cooling. If all other data centers across Europe achieved a similar level of efficiency, this could cut electrical consumption for the European data center industry by half, greater than the annual electricity used by all households in Sweden. We also work with partners to solve big problems, from improving flood forecasting in India to helping people decide if they should put solar panels on the rooftops to making wind power more predictable and therefore more valuable to the energy system. We are just beginning to scratch the surface and we are excited about the possibilities. We know there's more work to do to build a more sustainable Europe and deliver on the promise of the European Green Deal and the Paris Agreement. The technology industry can be at the forefront of creating a carbon neutral Europe. At Google, we pledge to collaborate with the EU and our peers to scale up corporate clean energy purchasing so that every company everywhere has the ability to opt into carbon-free power. Transparency is key. We'll continue to report the carbon footprint of our operations and we'll encourage others to do the same. We will support efforts to improve energy efficiency in the ICT sector, continue to decouple digital technology growth from energy consumption and embed circular economy principles into industry operations. And we'll continue to invest in AI to tackle the challenge of climate change. From climate change to health, we have the potential to improve billions of lives here in Europe and everywhere. The biggest risk of all may be failing to do so. By ensuring AI is developed responsibly and in a way that benefits everyone, we can inspire future generations to believe in technology as much as I do. I'd like to thank you all for being here and listening today. Thank you. Thank you, thank you very much for the inspiring speech, Sunda. Um, it's a pleasure again to have you here and discuss with you today. Now, of course, AI is a great technology to help consumers um, find the things they want and they search for. Let's take YouTube. My YouTube feed has really the kind of music I like the most. 
However, a recent study by uh, Professor Algeier actually shows that a lot of content on YouTube relating to climate change deviates from the scientific consensus and actually promotes views of climate deniers. I guess you can't censor those videos, but how do you use AI to prevent that these kind of videos get too much promoted? You know, at Google, our core mission, first of all, it's great to be here. Thank <coughs> you for having me, and uh, it's a privilege. In our core mission, in fact, what we've set out to do as a company is to <coughs> provide high quality, quality, accurate, and trusted information. It's what we've been doing at Google for 20 years. And that same mission applies to YouTube as well. When we look at, we always get specific examples, but we analyze it as a system, right? Mm -hmm. And even in YouTube, we have worked hard to promote what we call as high-quality authoritative content. And, and harmful content, uh, when we measure, it's a very subset of less than 1% on our platforms. And in any area, we rank and we promote authoritative sources. And we use a recommendation engine to actually do so. So in some ways, we have an equal amount of opportunity to get the right views on climate promoted as part of our platforms. It's always important to balance free speech uh, and, uh, and, and making sure information presented is accurate. And it's a balance we are always working to get right. And AI increasingly helps us do that better as well. But it's work in progress, for sure. So you already mentioned that Google has published uh, seven principles on AI. Now it's interesting, um, we can't go through all of these seven principles, obviously, but it's interesting to see that um, the EU's independent expert group on artificial intelligence also came up with seven principles on AI. Those principles quite overlap with those of Google, but there's some difference. And one difference I spotted is that the EU experts want human agency and oversight um, uh, over, over AI, which you do not mention in your seven principles. So perhaps you can explain to, to us if there is no oversight, how, does, how does, uh, does it work that Google's AI is actually socially beneficial, which is your goal, free of bias and accountable? You know, first of all, I, in its, I think it's important to appreciate the reason there's a lot of overlap in these uh, principles is because they're rooted in fundamental core human values. Of course. And I think we, sh you know, we share all of this as humanity, and so I think it's great to see the commonality you know, we do, accountability is an important part of our uh, AI principles. We want our systems to be accountable and explainable and be tested for safety. And I think inevitably doing that, we assume, will involve, uh, you know, human agency and, you know, humans to review. And we specifically mention that we want these systems to be accountable to people. And so, Google employees? Or, uh, no, or to, society, to, to society, to, to society at large. And, and I think regulation should, should play a role in that as well. Uh, like today, for example, you have GDPR, which you know, ensures accountability on privacy, which is an important right. And I think the same thing should apply to AI as well. So we, we assume to do that correctly, you, know, you, know, you need humans to review it. But humans alone won't be enough. It's got to be, you, know, you need AI systems to be able to review AI systems as well. So I think it's, it's both are important. But I don't view this as a substantial difference, and uh, you know. Well, I, I'm still just to push you a bit on that point. I think uh, the interesting uh, question is always who, in the end, uh, takes these decisions. And I, I think you're right. The AI needs to inform you and needs to 
you can't do it yourself because there's just too many videos out there on YouTube and so on. But so you need humans at some level. But but who decides on who are these humans and who who takes the responsibility really? I mean, should it be independent? Uh, working groups uh, of independent experts. Uh, how, how do you want, how do you think how do you see that for Google being organized? Really, you know, within Google, the way we do it today is uh, we have uh, AI Technology Review Council. It's internally to Google, uh, but we have working groups in each teams which are building products, and we have a higher level uh, review group which reviews uh, you know sensitive projects for approval. That's how we do it within Google. But I think how do you scale it up outside and, uh, you know, and, and develop frameworks, I think is going to be an important part of the conversation. But I think once there's regulation, there are regulatory bodies which will have oversight, and, and, uh, and I think that serves as a good framework for how to approach these things. Mm -hmm. Let's talk a bit about um, geopolitics. You already mentioned um, that you think AI needs to be regulated. Um, course, in the transatlantic um, view, and you started off by saying we can work together on the transatlantic, but in the transatlantic relation, there's different views on how strongly artificial intelligence should be regulated. Some think um, uh, the US especially thinks light touch regulation is probably fine, while in Europe, I guess the tendency is probably we should go for a bit stronger and tougher regulation. And um, I guess um, my, my question is, um, uh, do, do you think we, we got it right with the high data protection standards that the EU has? Should it even go further? And when it comes to industrial data, which is the new front, I mean, the consumer data, Google has it already, but the, con the industrial data, um, the relevant European commissioner, Thierry Breton, he just published an op-ed, I think, a week ago or so, suggesting that we should make sure that these kind of data remain really in Europe and should be protected as a European core European asset. How do you see um, the dealing with data and the transatlantic divide? You know, again, even in um, to start with AI regulation, US, you know, launched what I would say is a set of AI principles, and and the good news is again, you know, they share a lot of commonality. Uh, I think the U.S. approach has given more weight to a sector-based approach and uh, less in a cross-cutting way, a set of AI principles plus a focus on uh, specific sectors driving regulation. Uh, I think it's okay for, there's, I, I see a lot of alignment. The pace may be different. That's happened in privacy. It's been great to see Europe bring a single privacy framework. I remember the days, you know, dealing with, you know, 26 different privacy regulations, I think actually makes it very, very hard to have a common framework like GDPR. I think actually gives certainty to people, helps businesses approach. If you're an European entrepreneur building a company in Europe, now you can more easily scale across all of Europe, uh, which, is, which, is, which is an important uh, advantage if you can do that. And so I think those have been good developments. And GDPR can serve as a template to other places around the world. And so I think, I think it's been okay to see that. I think in AI, with the new European Commission, there's been a clear focus on AI regulation. We see it as an opportunity uh, to drive some important conversations while remembering the technology is in very early days. Mm. So some, some things which we would consider today as being very concerning will evolve sharply. So there's a balance to be had. Uh, it's important as we look at AI regulation for Europe, AI also presents a huge opportunity 
Europe is a very strong industrial economy, and to continue to be at the forefront of the economy, AI is going to play a role. And so the ability of European industry to adopt and adapt AI for its needs is going to be very critical for the continent's future. And so it's important to keep that in mind, and that's where the balance has to come from. And so when it comes to the data ownership question, I mean, there's also a question on Slido by David, David Postius. What principles should apply, uh, in your opinion, to any legislation that deals with data ownership and data sharing? I mean, this is a particularly relevant question, and especially when it comes to industrial data. I mean, so the, firms, that, the firms want to adopt AI, yeah. they want to adopt it, but that AI at the moment is basically American or Chinese. So, so should, we, should we find our own AI or should we make sure that the data gets protected here? How do we deal with the data ownership? You know, when we do cloud partnerships, you know, the data is owned by the customer. Um, in, in, in all those cases, it's encrypted and the customer has the key. So first of all, so when we deal with industrial data, the companies hold the data, right? And, and uh, that's important to understand that. And as part of it, as Europe develops, develops its industrial data policy, I think we are happy to, you know, I think it makes sense to support that, and just like we've done it on the consumer side. But it's, it's important to give people certainty and comfort and uh, choice and transparency around how their data is dealt with, just like we have done on the consumer side, it's equally important for industries as well. But from a Google Cloud standpoint, we assume and we operate according to the principles of the customer holds their own data, and you know it's protected by their own key, and we encrypt it on our side. Let's talk a bit about um, the social consequences of artificial intelligence. Many, of course, fear that AI takes will take your job, my job, perhaps um, many jobs. Um, and feel that um, social consequences of artificial intelligence could be quite dramatic. Do you agree with uh, such a, such worry? Um, and what, what what would be your strategy to mitigate uh, the consequences of AI on job polarization on social consequences? It's a great question. I think the right approach is to be concerned. Uh, you know, given the po uh, you know potential for AI. It's important to look back in history. We as a society have uh, adapted through significant moments of technological change. As Google, we recently uh, you know, com completed a study with McKinsey which looked at the impact of automation in the European regional market. And if you look at the European regional jobs market, by 2020, there are more jobs that have been created than lost due to automation. So I think that serves as a guideline with every new technology There are newer things that get created as well. And that'll be true for AI as well. But even in a scenario where there are newer types of jobs created, it's nevertheless going to be disruptive. You know, people will have to shift to entirely new jobs. And that's hard. And which is why I think the, the more urgent thing is to think about reskilling. How do you uh, take your workforce and the ability to teach them new skills at different points in their careers. So digital reskilling is very, very important. I think one of the most important things for governments to involve in. It happens to be a big effort which Google is part of. But, you know, So far in Europe alone, we have uh, trained over 5 million Europeans on digital skills training and uh, you know, over 100,000 Belgians here. But it's an ongoing work on our part. But I think that is important to do as we deal with AI. 
it is going to be a challenge, but it also presents opportunities, and we have to, the only way out of it is to buy, invest in our ability to reskill large mm -hmm. portions of your work, workforce on a continual basis. I think gone are those days when you can study once and then work for the rest of your life. I think that will change in the future. And so our ability as a society to adapt to that is going to be really important. Let's talk a moment about sustainability. Um, of course, AI can play a role in achieving sustainability. And I got a question from a person called Axel, 18 person people like that question, between engineers. Some people talk about power sustainability and others will make it happen. Could Google AI help crack the code of fusion power? It's a very specific question. Mm -hmm. But perhaps you answer the question sustainability more generally. You know, I, as I said in my speech too, I, I think AI, the area which it has such huge potential on an immediate nature is climate change. We see it in our work. You know, we run our data centers much more efficiently than others. And we do it using AI, uh, at least for part of the solution. And through Google Cloud, we are making it available. We are helping improve weather forecasting, uh, better predictions. In the case of wind energy, for example, we are able to better model and predict wind patterns. And hence, you can decide, I mean, you can make improvements to how you run your grid when you offload. That drives about 20% efficiency on our wind projects. So across the board, we see AI playing a big role in sustainability. Google has been carbon neutral since 2007. And, and, you know, and increasingly, we will rely on AI, not only to do it within our company, but to help other companies do it. Now, to go to your question around uh, nuclear fusion, um, we actually have a project where we are working on uh, using AI to help uh, improve nuclear fusion. And you know, it's, a, it's a classic case where when you look at a typical nuclear fusion setup, the number of variables you're dealing with is really, really a, a large number for humans to model it alone. So we are using AI to help improve modeling uh, of the environment there. And you know, I'm optimistic those are all areas uh, where we can uh, drive improvements. And so yes, it's something we are working on. Exciting. Um, well, you have been appointed to be the CEO of Alphabet in addition to Google um, quite recently. Uh, perhaps you can talk to us about how this is different and how you think you policymakers should see such a large and very powerful company. I mean, your market capitalization has just exceeded one trillion, um, if I read the news correctly, so congratulations. But it's a very big, big company. And um, I think Mr. Anonymous asked the question, um, uh, is is big bad? Um, it's you know it's a natural question which comes with scale. Uh, I think there are clear advantages uh, of of being able to take a long term view and invest in scale. You know we've been working on quantum computing as a company for 13 years, and in 2019 we achieved an important milestone called quantum supremacy. You know, when we make these advances, uh, we publish, we share our research, we contribute it back to the outside world as open source as well. So being a large company allows us to invest in technology for the long run, and, and we can take a long-term view. And so I see this, uh, you know, importance of things like that. But with that scale should come scrutiny. I think that's the right approach. Uh, we want to use our scale 
to do things which will take a long time and are very difficult to do. We've been working on uh, self-driving technology for 10 years now. And regardless of how many years it takes us to get there, we see the societal benefit of uh, saving lives. So those are the kinds of projects we can do by being big. But I think it's important that you know, we state our goals clearly. We are more transparent as a company at our scale. And you know, we engage constructively when we need to. And, and we form public-private partnerships, including with governments around the world, uh, to do our work better. Uh, but you know, just like EU is an institution which comes together to work at scale, I think there are times when uh, scale gives you the opportunity to do more important things than you can do as a smaller company as well. Still, uh, many worry. Um, of course, in the U.S., um, you know, there's a very active debate. Elizabeth Warren, uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren, has argued that big tech should be broken apart because they're just too big. Um, so, how strong really is your case that the size uh, advantage really outweighs the possible risks for consumers, for society, the concentration of power? How, how I mean, how strong is that argument really? I mean, it's. I mean, you have to. First of all, it's. It's up to society to decide how big companies should be, right? It's right. not, you know, it's it's not for any individual company to decide, you know. And and it's important to be fact-based, you know. All indications that consumers are really benefiting, uh, you know, from the work uh, we are doing across many many areas. Uh, but I think it's an important debate to continue to have, and you know, it's not the first time there's been debate when companies have gotten large. Of course. But if you look at ten years ago, uh, you mentioned market capitalization. And you, you look at the largest market capitalized companies 10 years ago, they are not the highest market cap companies 10 years since then. Technology changes fast, uh, you know, so I think it's a very dynamic world as well. So you, uh, we will host tomorrow uh, Executive Vice President Margrethe Vestager. I think you will meet her this afternoon. Um, what would be your message uh, to her on how Europe should regulate artificial intelligence? You know, I'm excited at the new Euro European Commission and the leadership. I'm um, uh, looking forward to meeting both EVP Vestire and EVP Timmermans later today. Um, specifically, you know, I think it's exciting that the Commission has taken a clear focus on both AI and, and sustainability, two important areas, I think. On AI regulation, my message would be, um, would be that it's an important area to be regulated. Um, it's too critical not to do it. Um, but I think it's important to, we are in early days, it's important to build based on existing regulations, leverage, leverage it where we can, and choose applications and, and think through the impact on certain applications, the higher risk applications, and start with regulation there first. And in, in, in industries like healthcare, where there is existing regulation, again, take advantage of it. So case-by-case case regulation, really, or um, Principles, case-by-case case regulation, also setting up better public-private partnerships. I think for this to work well, no different from climate change, all of us have to do it together. AI is something which is going to work at a global scale. There are many countries involved. I think go it alone won't work for anyone. And so the more we can bring private sector and governments together and drive international frameworks, I think that will be a great way to do it for the long run. Perhaps my very last question, I'm afraid we don't have time for more, is about um, China. 
China has um, its own approach to the internet, its own approach to data regulation, its own approach to, to privacy. How does, how, how does that affect um, a company like Google and how does it affect also the European Union? How, what would you advise also the European Union how it should deal with China and Chinese technology? You know, for me, when I look at um, AI and, you know, I talked about the importance of a global framework, just like climate, it's happening. You know, we, you know China has a participatory in Paris Agreement and so on. As we think through AI technology over time, a lot of AI technology is going to be developed in China. And so I think the more we can drive common frameworks over time, uh, you know, is, is going to be an important basis for it. Maybe over time, multilateral trade frameworks can also include technology under it, and that serves as a basis to do that. I've been heartened by the fact that OECD and G20 are increasingly talking about you know, things like AI as part of, uh, part of the work they are setting out to do. That gives another way by which we can uh, engage with China on these topics as well. Since we have 50 seconds left, let me ask you one more question, um, which is by Javier Espinosa from the Financial Times. And it is about the US modeling proposals on a moratorium on facial recognition technologies in the UK is considering similar plans. Do you agree with a temporary ban of facial recognition? What I think is more important, you know, Google uh, for now, because we, realize, uh, we realized facial recognition is fraught with risks, we don't today offer it as a general purpose API. Uh, you know, we have held off on doing that. So we understand the risks associated with it. So I think it's important that governmental regulation tackles it sooner rather than later and gives a framework for it. Um, whether, you know, what, what form it takes is too early to tell, but I think it's important governments are involved giving the path. But not immediately. It can be immediate. Uh, you know, maybe there's a waiting period before we really think about how it's used. But there are positive use cases as well. Uh, so I think uh, it's up to governments to charter the course, and it can be done in partnership. But I do think it's an important area, uh, and it has to be one of the higher risk applications which we tackle in the first wave of use cases we see. Well, thank you very much, Sunda, for your time today and for uh, this uh, interview. It was a pleasure to host you today, and thank you all for coming. I'm sorry we don't have more time. I think we could have been go ongoing for another hour on this topic, but that's all the time you have, unfortunately. Thank you very much. Thank you.